He is to come with power and glory. God, we are looking forward to this day, and as we open your word this morning and think about some of these themes, would you guide us into your truth? Would you, by your spirit, teach us and allow us to be uh, shaped and molded here this morning and drawn into fellowship together to uh, be a family, a body before you in anticipation of all that you have for us? So guide us in these things, we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. July 1996 goes back a little ways before some of you were born and things, but our family that year was on holidays up at a cottage in Muskoka. And uh, we had two weeks holidays and uh, loved being up there. It was my, our family's cottage. My folks had a cottage. And we would go up there and just it was great to kind of chill out. I love to take two weeks off in a row because it gave me time to unwind. You know, my wife always used to say, usually if I only took one week, I never really unwound from all the stuff that I do. So I always tried to take nice blocks. So we had two weeks this year. And near the end of that first week, we had all gone to bed. And about midnight, the telephone rang. And when you get phone calls those times of night, I was sound asleep. And all of a sudden, the phone rings. It wasn't the day of cell phones. It was the landline. I had to get out of bed and get out into the, the basement kind of rec room that we had and remember where the phone was. And finally got the phone. And, hello, hello. And the voice on the other end said, yes, sir, this is a police constable something from the York Regional Police. Uh, is this Mr. Havercroft? Yes, it is. Is this the Mr. Havercroft who lives at 83 Joanna Crescent? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, good, sir. I'm standing in your kitchen. Not, not a good thing to hear. Right, middle of the night. I'm in your kitchen, sir. I need to inform you that your home has been broken into, and we believe that a number of things may have been stolen. Great. <laughs> Great, right? So a thief has come into our home, middle of the night. My dad and I, he was there as well, and family all gets up. We talk about what we do, so we packed up drove from Muskoka back down to our house, met the police there. Yes, sure enough, it had been broken into and a bunch of stuff had been taken. And uh, just really messed up our holiday, right? Just that, that shock of what was going on, uh, just trying to figure it out, call the insurance company, and the insurance company was great because the adjuster said, let's just seal up your home. He understood we were on holidays. You go back up on your holiday We'll figure all this out when you come back. And so it's kind of like, oh, good. At least I don't have to worry about it for another week. And so we went away. But the theft, the thief breaking in our house, just really shakes things up and kind of changed things for us in a very quick way. There's another part to this story, but I won't go into it. The next week, at the end of the next week, we arrived home from being out for a day, just out caught it, you know, out in the boat and having fun. And we got back, and my mom and dad met us down on the dock and said, your home has been through an explosion. <laughs> there was a home in our neighborhood blew up. And so, again, I had to call the insurance company and kind of say, hey, something else has come up. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. You know, but anyway, a whole other story. Some of you didn't break in, but something terrible happened. Thieves and explosions and things like that don't let you know they're coming, Right. They're unexpected. They're unwelcome. Chaos happens. They cause us trouble. 
And as we come into 1 Thessalonians 5 today, there is a day coming that is described as a thief in the night. Unexpected, sudden. And that's what Paul is leading us into as we uh, think through this passage together. If you want to find your way in your scriptures to this part, we are looking at chapter 4 last week. Kind of the first half of discussion, verses 13 to 18. You remember last week, Paul was writing to assure these Thessalonians that, that those who are in Christ to understand death and resurrection, death is not final. Death, there is more to come. And for those who are in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be with Christ. And one day, there is a grand resurrection that is going to take place. That all of those who are dead in Christ in a moment of glory and hope and eternity as Jesus comes and we meet him in the air all together and we will be with him forever. And there is this great glorious coming moment. But as we talk about this, there is a question that hangs in the air. I'm sure it hangs in the air for us even as we sing hymns this morning and think about Jesus coming. And the question is, when? When is he coming? And apparently that's the question the Thessalonians had as well. But for the Thessalonians, they were concerned and confused. One about fellow believers who had died before it happened. We talked about that last week. But there was also another confusion and, and considering this that was causing other issues in their church. One of the issues that they had was some understood that the coming of Jesus again was so near, it was so impending, that they were quitting their jobs. They were saying, why bother working? Jesus is coming. You know, let's just, let's wait for him and actively kind of participate and understand he's coming. But why work? We don't need to accumulate wealth. He's coming again. And hence some urgings in the writings of Thessalonians by Paul to say, no, be at work. Don't be idle. We're going to look at that. And the second letter even gets more specific about it. You know, don't stop working. It's not that impending. And others were getting so wrapped up in what was going to have to happen first that it was causing some real, uh, just some unsettledness. They were alarmed by it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, one verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord had already come. There was something that was getting spread in their church. And they were saying, some were saying, Paul has said this. Paul has sent a letter. Or there's maybe a spirit of unrest that was getting in the church. Whatever it was, Paul identifies as it was unsettling, it was alarming him. And he's writing to correct something about this sense of what they were, uh, how they were dealing with this idea of the coming of Jesus Christ again. And so he begins to write them in the second half of this passage, the beginning of chapter 5. So, Let's pick up the, uh, the reading there. Chapter 5, verse 1. So he begins, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come. And I'm just going to stop there. That the day of the Lord will come. That's an incredibly important phrase 
And this whole thinking of the prophetic history of Scripture and what God has been outlining for, for millennia in the history of, of, of the Bible and through Scriptures. This idea of the day of the Lord, which Paul is picking up here, which is causing this kind of concern, and which we are singing about and we've been celebrating this morning, just to take a couple of minutes and think about just that phrase, where it comes from and some of its roots. The day of the Lord is a phrase that has great weight as it began to develop through Scripture, through the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, it was this picture of the day of the Lord as God's breaking into history, breaking in on the world in judgment and in vindication. To judge this world, to judge its sin, to judge the rebellion against him, but also to vindicate his people. And sometimes the day of the Lord was coming against other nations that were against Israel. Other times the day of the Lord was against Israel because of their rebellion. But always the sense of the day of the Lord being talked about is this technical term that covers this anticipated moment when God acts. In the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, just one example of this, Malachi chapter 4 the first uh, five verses. It's the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. And here's how it ends. We read there, Surely the day, and if you go down to verse 5, you see the day of the Lord. So this is the day of the Lord. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. This is a terrifying picture. The day of the Lord is sweeping in as fire. Fire is always this picture of judgment. There's this picture of God coming upon this world in judgment. A day of dread for those who are unbelievers. For those who stand rebellion against God or in ignorance against God. So simply as Romans said, suppress the truth about God. God in this day is coming and nothing will stand before him. But, verse 2, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. There is hope for those who revere the Lord, for those who act in fear towards him, who are found in him. There's healing that is going to come. Healing, this sun of righteousness is going to rise, and there's healing in its rays as it's come. There's going to be frolicking like well-fed calves. Isn't that something you've always wanted to do? <laughs> a little frolic after a good meal. I'm not quite sure what that's about. But anyway, it's there, right? It, it, it's a picture of celebration, though. If you've ever seen calves frolic, there is something very joyful and weird about it. But anyway, that's the picture. It's a celebration of life. This day of the Lord is terrible for some, but for others, it is a great day. It's a glorious day. It's a day of vindication. It's a day when God will lift up his people. A great day. It's a day either to be anticipated with longing and with hope, or it's a day that's going to come suddenly and bring people down in judgment. The 
It's how he ends in verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. And remember, this is one of the last verses of the Old Testament. There's going to be 400 years of silence between the voice of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. And this last voice of the prophet is, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. There is some preparation that will be made. There is a sign for you. There's some indications of when the day is coming. And then we come into the New Testament and John the Baptist arrives on the scene. And in Matthew 17, Jesus' disciples pause and ask him and say, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replies to them. He says, to be sure Elijah comes and will store all things. I tell you, Elijah has already come. He's already come. And they understand this to be, he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, and they didn't recognize him. They've done to him everything they wanted. Do you remember his end? Beheaded. Beheaded because of his stand and his call for repentance. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Elijah has come, Jesus says to them. So for those students of the word who thinking of this day of the Lord and God coming in judgment... And Elijah's to come first. John Piper's, he comments about this. He says very simply, in Jesus, that day has in some sense come very near, if not already begun, is what they would understand. Elijah's come. The day, the day is upon us, would be somehow the understanding. And in the New Testament, this day also starts to get interchanged with the ideas of kingdom. As Jesus speaks of the kingdom, and there's a sense that the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. In Luke 17, 20, Jesus said as he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he's replied to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is saying, I am here and in that sense, the kingdom has come with me. And I am a part of this kingdom. And so there's this shift in understanding if we kind of trace this idea of kingdom through the Gospels and trace this idea of the day of the Lord, that they get intertwined and Jesus becomes the heart. He becomes the focus. It's the shift of understanding that the day of the Lord is going to be the day of Jesus. The day of Jesus Christ few examples 1 Corinthians 1 7 and 8 Paul says therefore you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed and he will also keep you the firm to the end so you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ the day of the Lord is his day now it's his coming it's when he will usher in all the anticipation all of that, that God would judge the world, but also vindicate his people. Philippians 1, as Paul starts that letter, and he's praying for his people. And he says, I thank God for you, and I, in my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until what? 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Right? He's anticipating that day, the return, the great and dreadful day. In verse 9, he continues and says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for what? The day of Christ. We're preparing ourselves for that day, that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to the glory and praise of God. This is the day Paul is talking about here in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord Jesus. When, as we read last week, he comes with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet, and all of his saints long dead and, and those who are still alive, reunited, resurrected, coming together with him, this great and terrible day of the Lord, which, as I said, raised some questions. <laughs> raised those questions as Paul in first. Thessalonians verse five or chapter five again says about times and dates, brothers and sisters, we don't need to write to you for, you know, very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When Paul, when and he's listening to them. He says, when? Don't ask. <laughs> don't ask is basically what he says. He says, I, I don't need to write to you about this. Don't need to write to you about times and about dates or seasons is how some say that. They're kind of two different kinds of words. Times has the idea of the specific of dates, you know, the chronology of what is to come. The idea of the dates or the seasons is the idea of signs. You know, as the seasons are changing, how do we know the changing seasons? And Paul says, yeah, you want to know about times and dates. You want to know the chronology. You want to know all the signs. And he basically says, don't ask. I don't need to write to you. What you know is enough. And he basically is saying, it's the same as Jesus told us. It's the same what Jesus told his disciples, which is very the simplest no one knows only the father only the father knows paul says that to get caught up and distracted by trying to figure out when jesus will come is not really the point here it's not really the point of knowing when he's going to come again in my lifetime which is as long longer than most of you in this room the church has gone through a great discussion of when Jesus is going to return. In my earliest years of ministry, one of the dividing things in churches was their eschatology, talking about when is Jesus going to come? When is this all going to take place? It mostly centers around the idea of the millennium. I kind of just thought I'll talk for a moment about this this morning because in the coming, you've probably heard some of these ideas. The millennium is talked about in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, it talks about a thousand-year period that's going to take place on earth that's connected to this coming of Jesus. And it's not a part of this letter, but as you read this letter, you can't help but ask if you've read Revelation, you've read other prophetic words in Scripture, kind of think, how does this all fit together? When is what Paul's talking about? When's it going to take place in light of millennial thinking? 
And the millennial discussion really comes down to this. There's several views. There's three main ones. And they're all defined by what prefix you put before millennium. There's pre-millennium, which means before the millennium. There's amillennial, which means it's really not a great descriptor, but it means no, there's not millennial. Or there's post-millennial. And what that's saying is when is Jesus going to come in relationship to the millennial? Pre, ah, or post. Two of those views are the ones that are mostly held in our circle, in our fellowship of churches, probably within our own church family. I know when Dwayne was pastoring, we were able to say we have two pastors on two sides of that discussion. <laughs> the pre and the awe is the really discussion point. Pre-millennial thinking, which is the side where I would come as I read on Scripture and as I understand it, as I fit the pieces together, it's where I find my comfort level being most there, that Jesus, this return that Paul is speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, is going to take place before this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So I would believe that the return of Christ is a premillennial event. An amillennial thinking would say, like I said, there's no millennial. What it really means is we are now in this millennial period. That this thousand-year reign that Revelation is talking about, that there's this church age that's taking place where the church is growing and, and being developed, it began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues till he comes. There's lots of discussions, and you can go back and forth, and there's good people on both sides of that question. Right? There's, and it's not our context today to kind of go into all those kind of details. But it is about putting together the pieces of Scripture and seeing how they fit. The post-millennial, it will sound something like all-millennial, but post-millennial is Jesus comes after the thousand years, and we're not in the thousand years yet. And the post-millennial, it's really the difference between all-millennial and post is what's happening in that millennial period. For the post-millennial, it's really a glory age of the church. And it's when the church has its, its biggest influence and the world gets better. To, it becomes the best it can be. And so then Jesus comes at the end of that. But all of that, Paul is saying, it's not the point. And Thessalonians, who were probably getting embroiled in some of this discussion, he says, of the times and the dates, I don't need to write to you. It's not where we need to go. It's what Jesus has said, the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Eugene Peterson in the message, as he translates this opening passage, his, his uh, translation, the message, is really mostly commentary, but it's as he translates, he comments. I like what he's done with First Thessalonians 5. He says this, I don't think, friends, that I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. You know as well as I that the day of the Master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. About the time everybody's walking around complacently congratulating each other, we've sure we've got it made, they say. Now we can take it easy. Suddenly, everything will fall apart. It's going to come as suddenly and as inescapably as birth pangs to a pregnant woman. You can't put it on your calendar. That's what Jesus has told us about 
about dates and seasons. It's not the point. What the point is, you can be ready. The point is, you can live in glorious anticipation of his coming. How do you get ready? Those two pictures of a thief and a pregnant lady are the pictures that Paul chooses to say, this, there's, there's something here about understanding what the day of the Lord is going to be like. It's going to come like a thief, unexpected, sudden. It's a phone call out of the blue in the middle of the night. I'm standing in your kitchen. Well, you're going to get a call from Jesus one day. <laughs> I'm coming in the clouds. I'm in the air. Like I am here. And the world's going to understand it. And it's going to come when people are saying peace and safety. It's the idea people will be complacent. They'll be secure. There's a smugness saying we've got it all together. In Matthew 24, Jesus says it's going to be like the days of Noah. So it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Look at this. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. What's he saying? Life was just going on. Noah had been preaching for a hundred years about the coming of the flood that God was going to judge. He was calling for repentance. And they just went on eating, drinking, up to the day that he entered the ark. And knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Destruction will come suddenly, unexpectedly like a thief. That terrible day of judgment that Malachi speaks of. You know, fire and stubble is left. Second Peter gives the same kind of picture of fire coming, of judgment coming. People caught totally unaware. So totally unexpected. And it will be as unstoppable as labor pains for a pregnant woman. There's no escaping it. When labor comes, there's no kind of saying, whoa, let's hold off for a couple of days. You know, it's not a good time. At least that's how I understood it. So my wife told me, because our kids never seemed to come at the moment that was good in my schedule, right? I would rather, you know, let's just at least a couple of hours. Or it was when labor comes, it starts, and there's no stopping it. That's what Paul's saying. When this day starts... It's unstoppable. It is coming upon you, and it is labor pains. It's that picture of there is a sense of dread. There is a sense of what's happening. But there's a subtle subtext to this as well. Because when you think about being pregnant, it's definitely a sign that something is coming. Right? There's an expectation. You should not be caught totally off guard when labor starts you shouldn't be going whoa what's happening here right you should be having for nine months an awareness there's a baby coming right something big is going to take place and so there's that expectation you shouldn't be caught totally off guard and so the question really becomes who are these people that are that are caught like this? Who are these people that when this unstoppable day of the Lord comes, that they are wondering, where has this come from? Look at the next verses. 
He says there's people who are saying safety and security, but you, brothers and sisters, but you. And as you read through this passage, you can take note of the, those people, but you, them, us. This is who we are. Paul is highlighting this is who we are as those who are in Christ. Those who are going to be caught off guard and it's going to be unexpected. And once it starts, they're going to be saying, what's going on here? This labor that's come upon us and is unstoppable. Who are these ones? It's the unbelievers. It's not the church. You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. So this day should not surprise you like a thief. You're not going to know the time, but don't be caught unawares. You know there's a baby coming. <laughs> Get ready. Prepare yourself. Prepare your house. Baby-proof your life for the coming of, I guess it goes too far when I go there. <laughs> All right, but it is that sense. Your life can be ready in the same way that you expect the baby to come someday obviously in a more confined time frame, but get ready. Do what's necessary. Understanding what's going to happen, you can be ready. Look how he goes on. You are all children of the light. You're children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. We are those who are in Christ. We are light as he is light in this world. We are those who are in Christ and his righteousness is ours. We are a testimony to this world. We are those who by the spirit of God who dwells in us, the presence of God is among us. We who collectively gather as the church are the body of Christ in this world, his representatives who are going to be called up to meet him together when he comes. Let's be ready. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Be awake, be sober. These are the activities of people who live in the light. People who live in the darkness, they're unaware. People who get drunk, they get drunk at night. What's that talking about? They give themselves over to the excesses of pleasures. Our anticipation of the coming of Jesus is our call to alertness, to sobriety, not in the sense of getting drunk or not, but being morally upright, self-controlled, fitting ourselves to the nature of Jesus who one day we will meet face to face, either as he comes in this glorious day of return, or if we die, we are present with him. Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So that the Spirit of God is transforming us and ever-increasing glory into His image. We are the people of the light, people of the day, so we do not have to be caught off guard. We anticipate His coming. We're looking forward to this day when all of our salvation is going to be put on display and we will see His glory and our faith will become light and life. He fills it out even more in those next verses, 8 to 10. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as our helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Here's the call. Here's the call in light of Jesus' return. The coach is coming into the dressing room and says, suit up, everybody. The day's on us. What are you putting on as your suit? The armor of God. This is Paul's, believed to be Paul's first letter that he writes to the churches. 1 Thessalonians, it's interesting, isn't it, that you hear the kernel of this idea of the spiritual armor of God. Of course, he fills it out more in Ephesians 6. It's a very complete picture there of what the armor is. But here, Paul, in this kind of germ of idea, has this sense of, if we're going to be prepared for Christ, we need to, in our lives, be protecting ourselves and building ourselves up. And God has given us the tools He's given us the equipment. He's given us an armor to put on. And at the, at the heart of this armor is the foundational characters that he is building within us of faith, love, and hope. How often do you hear that triad all through Paul's letters, through Peter's letters and John's letters, that faith, hope, and love is what marks us? It's interesting, each time it gets mentioned, there's often just a little different emphasis on the three. Here the emphasis is about hope. You know, faith and love. He says, put faith and love on as the breastplate. The breastplate, that which guards our hearts. What does faith and love do to guard our hearts? Faith and love. One, faith, we know God. We understand his presence. In faith, we move forward with him. We trust him. It's that sense of we understand that he has come and dwells with us and is a part of our lives. And what's his love? His love that in forgiveness, that he has loved us so much that he gave himself for us to forgive us that we can be brought into his eternal presence and relationship. He loves us with an everlasting love. Put that breastplate on. Because when the doubts of this world and the, the enemy approaches us, we need to stand firm and strong against these things. And then he says, and put on this helmet, a helmet of hope that will guard our mind and our thinking, lays the, trans, the, the, the foundation for transformed thinking. At our men's retreat this weekend, our speaker, Tim Strickland, he was taking us through the ideas of identity, and on uh, Saturday he was talking about you know, our, our identity and, and how we build up our identity. And there's heart and mind issues. In Ephesians, it talks that when our heart is darkened, our thinking becomes futile. Well, here's Paul saying, put on the breastplate so that your heart stays strong. <laughs> and your heart stays soft to God. Because when your heart is open to God, then your mind is open to the thinking of God to be renewed in him. And when you're being renewed in your mind, then your heart has the ability to understand his presence and to move forward in faith and forgiveness. You see, he's saying, understand what your inheritance is, what your hope is. Because what he say your hope is? That you're not appointed to suffer wrath. You're not appointed to suffer in the terrible day of the Lord when he comes in judgment. You are forgiven. You are set free. You have been atoned. You have atoned for and you've been redeemed. So on that terrible day of the Lord, you'll be those who stand strong, prepared for all that he has and to receive foundation. You see, he's saying this hope that we are to wear as this helmet 
is in its foundation that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but as verse 10 says, rather that we have or understand that he has died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we are together, we live together in him. That great day of the Lord is ours. He is coming to complete what he has started in us. He died for us. He died for us. Paul loves that phrase. And it's interesting, as you go through his letters, he interchanges it with, he died for us, he died for our sins. He made that sacrifice for our sins, that our sins are paid for, but he did it for us. He did it so that you could be drawn into this eternal relationship with him. And his coming again is going to complete all that his death started. So whether we are awake or asleep, perhaps a reference back to chapter 4, we will live together with him. And he ends with the same thought that he ended the other section with. Therefore, in verse 11, encourage each other with these words. Encourage one another and build each other up. Andrew, you and the team, come on back up. Andrew just left. Okay, he's coming back. <laughs> They're going to come back up because today I want us to encourage each other with these thoughts. I want us to be a people who bless each other as a fellowship today. Our great and glorious king is coming. We're going to share in communion. We're going to take this bread and we're going to take this cup in a few moments and remember our Savior Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're given these words. I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. This table that we come to, this picture of a table sharing in this food together, is a picture of those who have accepted the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ by grace and faith. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you remember today and you take this bread and you'll remember his body. There's also a picture that we are a body together. And so as we take this bread, we're going to do this. We're going to pray together as we share in it. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup is the shed blood that Jesus gives for us. For the forgiveness of our sins, the, the price he paid of his life for us. He died for us, for our sins. And so we lift ourselves in remembrance and praise to him, and it's good for us to share it. And he finishes Paul in this section. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaimers this morning. If you take this bread and this cup this morning and eat and drink of it, you are saying, Jesus is coming. He died for me, and he's coming again in a great and terrible day one day. We're going to share in that together. As we sing this next song, which is going to be a reminder for us, even as we sing of the great, what it means to one day be with Jesus. We're going to sing the song and then just wait until we're all together because we're going to eat the bread together and share in the cup and pray. But as we sing this next song, I'm going to have the elders come and they're going to pass the baskets out. Just as it comes to you, pass it to the row behind you and help our gentlemen 
uh, spread this through the congregation. Let's sing together.